Welcome back, my friends, to the Council on Recovery podcast. I'm Howard Lester. Today, while the opioid epidemic is boiling over, addiction is killing tens of thousands and destroying millions of American lives. Especially tragic is addiction's ravaging effects on teenagers and young adults whose developing brains are being chemically altered by drugs and alcohol, creating a whole new generation who will suffer and die from addiction. Parents everywhere are looking for solutions to save their kids, desperately seeking an understanding of how and why addiction occurs. But more importantly, what can be done right now to save their children's lives? We'll take you inside the problem and shine the light on immediate and effective solutions by talking with Lori Feaster, a highly regarded clinical therapist and well-known mental health expert who has helped thousands through her knowledge, compassion, and commitment in the field of recovery. By the end of this podcast, you will have the information, ideas, and inspiration you need to help save the lives of people you love, or maybe your own. We'll be right back. My guest today is Lori Feaster, Clinical Director of the Center for Recovering Families at the Council on Recovery. Lori manages a team of clinical staff who serve clients of all ages in the center's programs. These include the Healing Choices Intensive Outpatient Treatment Program, Children, Adolescent, and Adult Counseling, Individual, Family, and Couples Therapy, and assessment services. Lori has a LCSW, MAC, CIP, and is a licensed interventionist. Her vast experience focuses in several areas of specialization. These include addiction and recovery, family systems, and codependency. Welcome to the Council on Recovery podcast, Lori. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you. Good. Um, What is your role at the Center for Recovering Families? I am the clinical director of the center, which is the treatment arm of the council. And how many years have you been with uh, the council? I have been with the council for approximately 14 years or so. That's a long time. It is a long time. So what led you to the profession of social work? Oh, well, um, my father was an alcoholic. And in our family system, uh, we had lots of chaos around that. Um, And so in that chaos, I had to figure out why. And so I began doing therapy as young as 18, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, His disease ended up with cirrhosis, and eventually he passed at age 59. Mm -hmm. So um, this impact was a big deal in our family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is going into social work was a way a way to find answers to find answers and also from where I sat it was so difficult to talk about and to even have my siblings understand my pain um, while they were in it they experienced it differently because they were older and as the youngest um, I think I got the brunt of the later dysfunction in my parents' relationship. So it was it was just trying to figure it out. And then so I wanted to help those folks that were going through the same. And at that point, when I think about uh, my age back then, this was at the time we still didn't talk much about addiction. We still looked at it as a moral failing, just stop it. Mm-hmm. And include, you know, I mean, I couldn't understand that at an early age as well. Why couldn't my father stop that? Did he not love me enough? Did he not love my family enough? 
And that's, you know, it was beginning seeking information. And then I wanted to pass that on once I found answers and answers within myself, too, that it wasn't about me, Mm -hmm. um, that this was a disease and it impacted the entire system. Yeah, it certainly does. And you're going into it to find the answers and then pass those answers on is how we help as many people as we can, isn't it? And it became my mission early on is to help people get where they need to go. And the council is a wonderful place for that. I mean, it fit my mission uh, to a T. I was able to, when I first started here, I worked in a different department, able to help people get to where they were. Mm -hmm. When I moved into the treatment arm, it was the same process is that now I could actually do the treatment Mm -hmm. and get help to anyone who came forward. For alcoholism or, or drug abuse, let me let me ask you: What uh, is drug addiction uh, the right term, or should we be saying drug abuse or substance abuse or substance use disorder? Well, as labels have certainly changed in the last year, according to the diagnostic manual, and so we do talk about substance use disorder. Uh-huh. It does help take the stigma stigma off um, as it's it's showing it's a disorder we're hoping to educate more people around that this is a brain disease this isn't it it isn't that moral failing you aren't that alcoholic under the bridge or that Mm -hmm. drug addict on the street this is a process that starts often young and is a continuum and if there is no intervention it's it can be lethal yes it can and uh being able to talk about it uh, in the right terms, I think, mm-hmm. is is what's most important because we're talking about a disease here, not a moral issue Absolutely. or a social issue or whatever else. Um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about your personal experience. How is adolescent substance use uh, different today than when we were teenagers? Well, I think there's a difference in the sense of the availability. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were kids, <laughs> um, you know, I can, I'll speak for myself. When I was a kid, it wasn't as readily available as I as I can see today. We have the internet, we have social media. Kids can find what they find quick. Mm. When I was a kid, you had to know somebody, and then you had to be brave enough to know that person. And or if it was at school, it, it was very cliquish. And if mm-hmm. you associated with those kids, then you were lumped in that area. Mm-hmm. And as a good girl, I didn't do that kind of thing. But I watched other people absolutely do it. Mm-hmm. I think also the drugs are a little different in mm-hmm. the sense that while the same drugs were back then, they also are more readily available, and some are more potent, like marijuana. Um, Kids today have an opportunity to get marijuana that can blow your socks off. Mm -hmm. When the marijuana of my day got you a little high and you felt stoned and you often didn't move much. But it didn't kill you. And today, due to the potency, can have vicious side effects. So those states where marijuana is now legal uh, for recreational use, uh, it's acknowledged that drug use or abuse is a disease and yet this new industry that's popped up seems to be supporting that disease the same way alcohol distributors and uh, cigarette manufacturers are supporting absolutely their their respective diseases absolutely yeah and all are addictive yeah they certainly are um when talking about 
substance abuse, should we also be talking about alcohol at the same time, or is that a whole separate discussion? A drug is a drug is a drug to the brain. So mm-hmm. substance use incorporates alcohol from where I see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we do differentiate when we're talking to that specific person, sure. you know, whatever their substance choice is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the brain doesn't recognize it. Oh, there's my joint. Oh, there's my drink. It's happy to receive whatever is coming up. The difference is the bang. The bigger bang for the buck when we get into different drugs. Mm-hmm. So alcohol is going to hit uh, a certain level, like maybe a good burger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you yeah. have one drink, you're going to have a good burger or, or good sex. Mm-hmm. Um, cocaine's going to be a whole lot different. I see. And the bigger the bang, the more opportunity for addiction. Yeah. And when we're talking about kids, we have to. Uh, I'm going to kind of veer into their brain a bit. You know, when when kids are 11 or 12, this is prime time for restructuring their brain. It's called pruning, mm-hmm. and in that time frame, um, it's 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 really actually very magical because the stuff that they haven't been using goes away, and they're building quicker infrastructure. So at one point, they will be able to receive information. 3,000 times faster than what they could the year before. Hmm. So if I introduce alcohol at this point in time, or drugs, there's going to be a a shift in development. Mm -hmm. So it's highly dangerous at this point in time. Mm. We've seen information that says that it slows down development. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We always see even as adults, we see when the kid starts drinking, that's where their emotional maturity stops as well, mm. especially if it continues to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking about the experimental drink. I'm talking sure. about if it's a consistent piece. But don't get me wrong, that experimental drink isn't something to be scoffed at either. Yeah. As the brain continues, it gets wired around alcohol or the drug they're using, which then gives them the opportunity to become addicted faster. I get it. Uh This time when kids are growing, this is the prime time for parents to be paying attention, Mm -hmm. to be communicating the dangers of substance use. Um, and, and this is actually the really good time for parents to be involved with their kids. And yeah. I'm not just at 11. I'm talking all the way through their adolescence so that they can uh, reduce the risk. Uh-huh. At this point in time, too, the kids, um, they, they also have the way they're brain built they're not they're not looking at their prefrontal cortex they're not using their executive functioning that hasn't been built yet and in fact that's not complete until about age 24 mm-hmm. so they're looking they're they're reactions are really from that midbrain mm-hmm. which is reactive I which see. is impulsive yeah and so introducing drugs at that point in time are also builds a higher risk for danger mm. So in this period of time is when the parent needs to be educating themselves, their kids, keeping their risks at bay, meaning having direct conversations, knowing what they're doing, knowing who their friends are, Uh and having a real interest. Very different from being enmeshed in your child, but being involved, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so you're talking about the physiological impact Mm -hmm. of drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. on the developing adolescent brain, Mm -hmm. taking it even beyond adolescence to age 24. Right. Uh, That's amazing. And something 
I'm sure not that many parents are familiar with or aware of. Uh, there, there seems to be this idea that there's a certain amount of natural experimentation that goes on in adolescence and often parents will say well it's just part of their their they're growing up what do you say to parents who come back to you and say that or those parents who are willing to even give their child alcohol at home because they don't want them experimenting with it elsewhere what's up with that there's a lot of things that are up with that and from where i sit it it, it frightened me um one of the things about that experimental piece anytime they do gives them that much more risk so Mm -hmm. if we can save off that drinking experience to legal age like Mm -hmm. 21 22 they're going to be in a better place they're going to have more opportunity for success in their adulthood by launching not only does alcohol and drugs uh, affect that growth it also affects motivation Mm. so so kids may not necessarily want to do the things that other kids not using want to do. Mm-hmm. So again, I would tell that parent, I would educate that parent, this is what happens, I wanna show you. And there's fabulous information on uh, YouTube about the brain and, sure. and, and teens, even just in a normal setting without even alcohol uh, introducing substance. Just knowing that will help the parent understand what's at risk. Mm-hmm. And if we even turn this around, this is the best time for kids. I mean, we kind of think about their puberty and their adolescence, and we kind of uh-huh. worry because they're they're going to be nasty monsters soon. When in fact, this is really a wonderful brain brain growth and spurt, and so many good things can happen mm-hmm. um, if allowed, yes. if supported. Yeah. Um, when when parents are permissive with this part and like allowing them to have drinking at the house Mm -hmm. is is to me on the poor boundary side because they're modeling Mm -hmm. and that's that's another piece when we see healthy families model healthy behaviors the kids are more apt to do that yeah i see given what's happening with the opioid epidemic and crisis and people dying do you ever get the sense or uh have you noticed parents being a little bit more permissive with things like alcohol or marijuana because in their mind at least it's not opioids at least it's not fentanyl or heroin i don't it i I think that that can be a way to think of it most parents that we see mm-hmm. we're already seeing some issues with the kids using drugs or nicotine mm-hmm. um, alcohol drugs or nicotine mm-hmm. and so I think that at this point they're usually trying to work in a way of band-aiding it and mm-hmm. trying to fix the piece there we really want to help them expose the whole entire what's going on and it takes a lot for that parent to see that they're part of this. Yeah. It's not just the child. Yeah. So I think in the previous years we saw more experimentation with opiates. Right now, that seems to be on the sidelines where we're seeing huge influx with vaping. Huh. And parents are worried. Yeah. Rightly so, because vaping is not regulated. 
Yes. Um, so kids doing these jewels and these e-cigarettes and these other types of ways to inhale nicotine and other substance mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have have really created a lot of concern. Hmm. So all that, uh, all the, the publicity that vaping receives of being a safer alternative than cigarettes and maybe in parents' minds a safer alternative than doing heroin or, or, or drinking is, is not necessarily true. Well, it the piece about it being safe is absolutely incorrect. Mm-hmm. It is unregulated. Yeah. The we know we do not know all the chemicals they put in the formulas. Mm-hmm. We do not know how it, it is impactful. Mm-hmm. I mean, look how long it took cigarettes to come out to see how dangerous it was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents were avid smokers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, you know, I don't think that warning got on those packs till after I was born. Yeah, yeah. So uh, today we're seeing things that, um, and especially when uh, I believe in how they package the jewels and the vaping uh, paraphernalia, you get more nicotine um, in, a, in that than an average cigarette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's really turned into a problem. Is that it, would you consider vaping a gateway into other substances, or is it a dangerous enough substance in and of itself I'd say probably I, I, I get worried about that gateway piece because uh-huh. a drug is a drug is a drug okay so any mood or mind altering substance can be uh, imperative I mean we, we it can impair you so if if it is a vaping component and I'm smoking because peers because problems because permissive parenting because no one's watching it, it, I'm, I'm probably masking something. So there's something underneath, right? I see. So can it lead to more? Absolutely. Does it? We don't know yet. I see. I mean, I, when I when I see my adults, uh, cigarette smoking does go hand in hand with a lot of my folks. Yes. Um, and to try to, uh, when you think about how the brain receives information, um, I go to smoke my cigarette immediately the dopamine is dropping because it's it's remembering the brain is remembering oh with that cigarette i had a crown and soda Mm, (laughs) and i'm already feeling that uh, feeling of ease yeah so all that stimulation will it's impactful yeah i'm sure it is uh how how does experimentation with drugs then turn into recreational use and then how does recreational use turn into uh, misuse and abuse. So how, when I think about, I think about recreational and use at the same kind of in the same way. So we use something. Let's let's just talk about alcohol because alcohol is easy. In the sense, it's legal. Yes. And so I have a I have a drink, and it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. For somebody that has predisposition, um, that might be more than. Oh, that's interesting. It might be, ooh, well, I mm, like that. Mm. But for the average bear, it's just like kind of eating broccoli. Huh. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I don't really think about broccoli much. And I certainly don't think about broccoli and cheese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, okay, if it's there, I'll eat it. But it's not something I really care about. Mm-hmm. So that's what we call use. Mm-hmm. Uh, misuse is 
let's say I'm out with friends, I'm having a drink and we're having fun. I have another and it gets more and more and more until the evening. I'm intoxicated. I choose to drive home. I get home. I kick, you know, I, I pass out or, or maybe I go to sleep. I wake up the next day. I have a headache. I realized, oh, those five drinks are, was really too much. I might, um, uh, you know, bark at the dog when he's in my way. And, mm -hmm. and I just realized, okay, that was bad. And most people in their lifespan do this. Mm. And they remember, oh, that's not good. Yeah. Um, and then they don't. They don't do that again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really need to stay at my one or two drinks. Those that have the predisposition, those that are have uh, secondary mental health issues, um, I shouldn't say secondary, if they have many mental health issues, um, can then choose to do that again. And that's when we call it abuse. So I'm, let's say I've had those drinks. I say, I'm not going to do it again. But the next week I find myself there. Yes. Despite the consequences, despite the headache, despite me kicking the dog, barking at the dog, whatever that is, I do it again. And I do it again. This is when we then begin to change the brain structure. This is the forming of the disease in that sense. Uh -huh. I'm now building a pathway through all the neurons and neuron transmitters. It's becoming from a grassy field to an I-10 as I continue to practice. And then I'm building that field of receptors each time. So, you know, where it first took me one drink to feel the effects, now it takes me six drinks to feel the effects. Because mm -hmm. I've, I've built all those, those structures in line. Uh-huh. And that feeling that I first had way back at use when it went, ooh, now is just like, eh, I need more mm -hmm. to get that first initial feeling. And I, I'm really chasing that a lot. Is that because you're building up a tolerance? Mm -hmm. I'm building up a tolerance. I need more, I need have to build more communication. I have to build more neurons to get to that part. Is there is there a part of our physiology that is actually, instead of tolerance, trying to be resistant I don't know that part. You know, mm -hmm. I think that, well, let, let me answer it. With those folks that are in that misuse, realize the effects and are, 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 are uncomfortable with that type of feeling. I see. Yeah. So at that point, they shut it down. That might be the resistance. That might be that normal part. And I hate to use that word. Yeah. That part of our brain that says that, that's pain. Mm -hmm. We don't like that. Don't do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly can remember the first time I ever drank too much beer. Yeah. It was nasty. And I never did that again mm -hmm. because it was nasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, at 57, I can remember that from age 15. I think we all remember yes. that, that so, sort of thing. So in this abuse piece, when I continue, as I build that... Uh, more receptors and more neurons to have the delivery system in there, there becomes an invisible line that one day I, I can choose to stop, and I say that really carefully, and the next day I can't. That next day is when my physicality, that physical part of my body now says from the brain, kind of like feed me Seymour. I have to be fed. Uh, if you choose not to drink, then I'm going to give you some consequences like the shakes, like irritability, like sweating, um, blackouts. This is, when, this is when we can really determine 
the body is now physically dependent upon that drink. And so it can happen that quickly. One day you are, the next day. It's a, it's an invisible line. Yeah. In the sense, I would imagine before that line is crossed, you're having some feelings. You're, you're getting there's a there's a nagging part of you that, wow. That was interesting. I've seen so many people with having blackouts that that was one of the first pieces that began mm. to happen is that they just did not remember a time span. Yeah, so they started to notice it at, at that point. <laughs> with alcohol and, of course, with, with opioids, when people uh, are taking them for any length of time, they're not going to necessarily know the effects of stopping until they actually try to stop. Absolutely. Part of when when we think about how this has affected the brain, the brain continues to tell you it's okay because it wants to receive that information. Um, it starts to look, um, this is when we start to think about denial, that word denial. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having consequences, but our brain rationalizes it and justifies it and doesn't give us the truth, doesn't allow the truth in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we act as if when our family's complaining, we think they're nuts because that's not what we experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, with all the physiology that you're talking about, and then we move back to the point of it being an adolescent brain mm. that we're dealing with, that's a real recipe for disaster, Absolutely. isn't it? And that's by, because the brain is so ready for learning and so vulnerable, addiction can happen faster here. I see. When, when I see uh, folks start, starting drinking maybe... I mean, drinking in the yeah. sense of not experimentation, drinking like after like when they're in college, it usually takes, we see people starting coming here late 30s, early 40s to see that real physical part happening. Yeah. But when we see kids, you know, I, I interviewed somebody not too long ago that started drinking at eight. Oh my goodness. And within years, that person was needing residential treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a there was a clear line of how the parents didn't know, um, didn't have the idea to ask questions when behavior started changing, mm-hmm. when they started skipping school, when uh, their characteristic of themselves, like at dinner table, like they would just kind of be vacant. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't ask questions. They didn't, they didn't, they felt fear. So they stopped and got stuck. Mm. Um, they saw their friends change. They saw their grades slip and they didn't have the information to do something differently. So a parent waiting for a kid to grow out of it is a mistake. Is a mistake. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get that. Uh, so when, um, what, and with regard to, uh, Parents and noticing drug use or abuse or alcohol use or abuse in their kids, what are the signs that parents should be looking for uh, either actively or I guess some will wait for them to really rear their head, but, but what, what should people be doing about that? Changes in their behavior, yeah. mood changes, uh, grades dropping, mm-hmm. skipping school, um, or maybe even isolating, not having their friends, staying in their room, um, not participating in family dinners or family outings, uh, those sorts of things. 
at what bloodshot point? eyes. I mean, there's some physicality to the there's bloodshot some... eyes, or maybe they're pinpoint eyes. I mean, there's different. Our eyes show different things for different substances. I see. So, how would you, or what would you say to a parent whose kid says to them, "I don't. I won't know if I'm a, a candidate for addiction until I actually try it." Because mm. you said earlier. Uh, some people can try it and not become addicted or not abuse it, but how would a person actually know until they're at the point of potentially becoming addicted just to find out that they're not one of those people who can take it or leave it? Well, I would say to the parent, hey, well, let's let's try this later when your brain is developed and then you can figure that out. Hmm. At this point, it's too much risk. I see. Even just for... Uh, stunting growth or stunting brain growth right. you know why take the risk and I would imagine too um, I'm, I'm not so sure that's what the kid says I think the kid usually has lots of peer pressure they've got other things going on as to why they want to use yeah. and that's I think that's the key is let, let's let's do some investigation what's yeah. going on with you that you want to use uh-huh. a drug uh-huh so you mentioned kids with the peer pressure uh, coming in. How about those kids who are saying, well, none of my friends are addicts. They just do this uh, every now and then, and I want to join them in that activity. What, would a, what could a parent say then? I would think it's, a, it's the, same the same information. Thing. It's like, it, and while you might want to join, I think that it's really imperative that you take less risk. I mean, if if the kid is going to do it, the kid's going to do it, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, peers get, kids get kids on drugs and kids get kids off drugs. And, and when I say that, that's kind of like the the philosophy around um, how we how we help kids figure it out. So if they are around kids that using drugs most likely that pressure because of where their brain is at at that point in time will be so much that they may have opportunity to do that Mm -hmm. if i have the parent support if i have the parents um connection with the kid the kid's going to make a better decision Mm -hmm. it's the ones that are out there that don't have the that structure that connection that will take the risk and remember it's about that brain they their development is really coming from the midbrain all the way to the prefrontal cortex so the decision making isn't uh, like adults mm-hmm. they're going to make the decision from more of their hippocampus area yeah. and so it, it's going to be not necessarily in sound information Yeah, it's more a reactive if that makes sense it does make sense and I want to go back or impulsive or impulsive yeah. okay um, I want to go back to something you said earlier about mental health mm-hmm. issues uh, what how do mental health conditions relate to substance abuse we see it often uh-huh. hand in hand. Yeah. When I think about the adults we see, most of our clients have a, a mental health problem, mm-hmm. whether it's depression and or anxiety, um, other things along the way. Many people ask us, "Is it? Is, does that usually come first or does that come yeah. second? You know, I don't know as if it really matters for me. What I want to help people do is find a way to get sober, and then we figure it out. I see. Um, When, absolutely, if I have depression and I'm looking for a way to um, enhance my mood, I might use a substance. Yeah. Or if I have anxiety, I might want to smoke a joint to help calm me down because I've I've heard heard that happen before. Uh Uh-huh. 
And so we do see that often is that we're self-medicating. Kids do that too. Yeah. Um, we see a lot of kids with ADD trying to find ways of putting themselves in the middle yeah. uh, by using alcohol. Well, for years, wasn't it a, a pattern for parents to use medications for ADHD and ADD for their kids and it got them through childhood mm -hmm. and then the kid is in uh, adolescence trying to allow their brain to mature, mm -hmm. but yet they've been doing the Adderall or whatever else they've been prescribed over the years, how does that affect the potential for abuse? We see a lot of kids with ADD abuse their drugs. Uh -huh. um, and I say, and when I say a lot, we have to be really mindful about that diagnosis too. I see. Many, um, in my experience, and I, I really want to qualify that, sometimes ADD is a, a way to We don't. We, we, let me let me just put it another way. Sure. Maybe the kids have had a hard time with their behavior, yeah. and so they've gone to their primary doc, and they say, "Oh, this is ADD." Yeah. And it might not be. So that has been overused. I see. Yeah. Like it was. It's kind of like the diagnosis of the day. Right. Today for adults, it's bipolar. Right. If I have a high mood or a low mood, oh, you've got bipolar. And so I see often that people aren't tested and or gone to the correct doc to get that diagnosis. If, if I were a parent right. um, and I suspected my child had attention deficit disorder, I would want to take them to a specialist. I see. So that they can be sure that that's what's going on. Because there can be other things that are happening. The kid can be acting out because of the family system something mm. going on within that structure mm -hmm. and it's manifesting in behavior. Yeah. So we, I, I'd really want to be really mindful about what the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of different stories out there Absolutely. and different approaches. So when a parent first discovers that their child, their adolescent is uh, using drugs or let's say drinking, what should what's the first thing they should do? I mean, should they ground the kid? Should they yell at them? I'm, what? Obviously, there are a lot of different approaches, and I don't know whether that's in the manual of how to be a parent or not. Well, I think the the, the yelling is probably not the best option. Right. Um, a because you know when we are reacting, we're just reinforcing the bad behavior. We're we're not helping anything. Mm -hmm. It is finding a way to communicate in a kind and loving manner mm -hmm. and to set boundaries with the child. I mean, I think that's the piece is we have to be we have to communicate what's the, what the truth is, educate the kid. Mm -hmm. Um and then set the boundaries so that he he or she are not going to fall into that trap again. Mm -hmm. I mean, the council is a wonderful place also to mm -hmm. start with that. We have great services for adolescents mm -hmm. that can give parent and the child or adolescent um, information uh, where they don't get it anywhere else. Like the Mindful Choices mm -hmm. uh, program, which is a program that zeroes in on high-risk adolescent behaviors Absolutely. for the parents and for the children to be educated about them and be better informed so right. that they, they don't right. run into trouble with that. And that's what we see that helps most is prevention. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not even prevention in a program like here, but yeah. in prevention in the home, mm -hmm. reducing the risk, Yeah, helping the child do it differently. So after a parent 
responds to the situation with the adolescent, there's a period of time in there where they have to see whether it's had its effect, mm-hmm. it, don't they? Mm-hmm. How long should a parent give uh, an adolescent to change their behavior or to mod- model uh, some sort of change i think it's individualized Mm -hmm. it depends upon what's going on with the kiddo Mm -hmm. um i think if it happens again i think that there needs to be a swift response and when i say swift response okay johnny's done this again so what i did didn't work so let's find some more help i see therapist counsel whatever to help get to the bottom of what's happening so the professional help that a parent could seek out where's the first place Mm -hmm. they should go what's the first thing they should do when they've determined that they can't uh, mitigate the problem at home and need outside help well I'm a little biased in that because yeah. I'd say the council because yeah. I think we can at least we can assess and to see what's up. We can give recommendations um, to the different programming because there's lots of options, not only mindful choices. Um, within the community system, there are 12-step groups to help the child and the parent mm-hmm. um, get support they need. Mm-hmm. There's alternative peer groups that can assist. Uh, like I said, when we go back to the kids get kids on drugs and kids get kids off drugs, right. this is a place where they can be sober, mm-hmm. do activities, create relationships, which is also really important for adolescents at this time. Mm-hmm. Their peers are their lifeline. Yeah. Um, there are... Uh, sober high schools that uh, adolescents can go to. There's there's a plethora of services. Mm. You mentioned assessment earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is involved in that? Uh, is is it in is is it health? Is it blood? What? How do you how do you determine? Well, we we have a standard psychosocial. I see. And we first get the adolescent in and do a drug screen, which is your analysis. I see. So we'll do that here right on the spot. Um, we will then do the narrative bios, uh, biosocial um, and then bring once we get the kid in there and, and see and talk, we can then discuss and give recommendations to the, the adolescent and the parent. Uh-huh. It takes about two hours uh-huh. um, for all the paperwork to get done. There's a screening tool in there, too, that to help really kind of back us up with diagnostic. Mm-hmm. I'm really mindful about how we talk to kids this way and parents because I don't want to put a label on them that's not true and I, and that can follow them through their life. Mm-hmm. So we, we're really careful with what, what we say at this point in time. Mm-hmm. If the child or adolescent needs our services, we're absolutely here to help them. If they need a higher level of care, we've created a plethora of, of other agencies and individuals that we work with. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned earlier, the development of the brain continues until age 24, mm-hmm. but between ages 18 and 24, mm-hmm. with the individual being an adult mm-hmm. where the parent cannot make the decision for them to get help and treatment and be assessed, how, how do you handle that situation when a, a parent of a grown child, <laughs> uh, you know, 20 years old, 22 or something, is calling for help for that individual? Well, as after 18, they are legally the adult. So part of what we attempt to incorporate is any kind of family interaction so when we do the assessments on those young adults we request that they include family for recommendations and or support Mm -hmm. when we can get everybody in at the table 
we have better options for long-term sobriety. I see. So you work for the Center for Recovering Families, mm-hmm. and right in the name is what you do mm-hmm. with families. So what role can parents play in the treatment process? Part of them being available for either support, integration in the new way of life, if it, if it is sobriety that we're asking for them, mm-hmm. um, role modeling, yeah. uh, just the participation alone is will help link them and their child in this part mm-hmm. and, and gives that adolescent uh, a stronger way of living mm. and and. The, the support is just un- there's so much to it I can't even express myself I'm, I'm kind of stuck here yeah um, I get that it's it is it's when we see the recovery lasting longer it's because we usually they have a connection and if it's family connection it's it's best so it's not about just dropping the kid off no. and having him get the help he needs nope. and then picking him up afterwards this is a family disease. Yeah. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, when we think about the kid having an issue, I'm as a family therapist in this way, we know it's about the system. Yeah. It's, and it's not about blaming parents. Something's happening, though, within that system to cause this behavior. I see. What, what kind of expectations do you see parents having when they first take a child? an adolescent in for help oftentimes when we're seeing parents um, they are they're fearful angry and probably have some pain involved too Mm -hmm. because behaviors have happened things have happened Um, I think their expectation unfortunately most likely is let's drop them off and and let them let us get let us fix them Mm -hmm. when they see that we want them involved there's you know there's often a pause and with education, we can see a quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there is a family system issue, we might have to dig deep, and that's often hard. So that means the family, the mother, the father, sisters, and brothers, becoming involved in the process mm-hmm. by virtue of uh, therapy or family uh, therapy, psychoeducation, multifamily groups, whatever whatever can help, we're going to ask them to do. And, and and that's also going into the community and, and getting involved in their own twelve step work. So how much more effective is that approach than just treating the individual and sending them back? It's that part is not effective. While there can be some survivors, it's it's when when we think about somebody who has an issue of addiction, mm-hmm. there's usually an underbelly of shame. Yeah. And in that shame, most likely they have lost connection to mm-hmm. a power greater than them mm-hmm. and or humanity. Yeah. So they're looking for a place to belong. Right. Not not fit in belong yeah and that's why 12 step is so important because Mm -hmm. it it provides a belonging that i can be who i am Mm -hmm. with as a brain disease and all and be loved and cared for so once the individual goes through the treatment or the family does what it needs to do to uh, participate in that treatment when they leave either a rehab or an intensive outpatient treatment program or just regular counseling, is the recommendation always to go into a support group like a 12-step program? Absolutely. When we're not here, somebody else has got to be here. I see. And so we want to have them begin that um, connection 
while they're in services so that when services end they have they have their own family they have their own place to go yeah um, it's it's just vital and if it's not a 12-step group it's something church something yoga whatever it is now, I'm gonna say I want people to be in uh, an atmosphere where they are safe so I, I prefer a 12-step but not that doesn't always work there are a lot of 12-step programs out there. I Absolutely. believe at last count, there's over 100 uh, different 12-step programs mm -hmm. and literally thousands of meetings all over the place. So here's a tough question, uh, Lori. What do you tell those parents whose adolescent teenager has been through treatment, does all right, let's say, for a while, and then relapses? I tell them to feel their feelings mm -hmm. and let's move on. Yeah. Um, it is. It can be very disappointing, but in, in, in the sense of this disease, it's like when I'm sober, it's in remission. Mm -hmm. And something has caused me to drink or drug again. Mm -hmm. It's a trigger I haven't dealt with. It's something else that comes up. Uh, you know, there's a plethora of things. Mm -hmm. When we think about why people use drugs, it's, it's not just because I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how do... What do you say to someone who wants to blame the treatment system that the person has been in and say, well, that was the wrong rehab for that person to go to. We need to send them somewhere else. Uh, is there that big of a difference or, or does it go back to what the person does with what they've gotten? I think it can be a twofer. Yeah. You know, I've been in the field for 28 years mm. and um, I absolutely have seen some stellar programs and I have also seen some not great programs. Mm. But I also believe it is up to the individual to uh, put what they can into it. Mm -hmm. If, But I have to also say, you know, if, if I'm being dragged somewhere, I'm, <laughs> I'm most likely not going to have that sponge-like effect and, and soak it all up. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's about where we're at at that time. Mm -hmm. It's my prayer, if, if I'm being dragged in there, that something will stick mm -hmm. and I'll have enough skills to get through for a while until I am open mm -hmm. to do the work that needs to happen. Yeah, I get it. Um, but there are absolutely, when I think about today and treatment is so different from when I started. Um, Back then, it was a very 12-step model yes. in most treatment facilities. Uh -huh. um, and now we are integrating lots of different options to assist us getting to where we need to get. So what happens to parents who are making multiple attempts to try and get their child, their teenager, maybe even the young adult, sober, and it's not working, and they're just literally having their own mental health crisis over that uh, what is the risk of that and, and how how can that be addressed that's a really tough question I think that when we see this this happen we've often referred that client to a higher level of care if, if there's continuation of relapse and we really have to ensure that the parents are taking care of themselves as well so it's putting on that uh, oxygen mask first, um, getting their own help. They may have to be setting really tough boundaries like having the child in another facility that's not with them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've seen kids, I mean, I've seen parents place kids in 
different types of settings mm. that may not be coming home very soon mm. or they live with other relatives until they can get on their feet yeah there's all kinds of things that happen yeah so they can get away from whatever influences might have been nearby mm-hmm. and and other behaviors that that trigger them what can a parent do if their child is out on the street or mm. or has run run away over uh the addiction there are many different things. I know, uh, you know, the the good news is we don't see that as often as we used to. That's good. Um, there are facilities around Houston where kids can go for I mean, shelters that they can stay at. Um, difficult, and I think parents have a real struggle of knowing that they're out there and not able to know that they're safe. And I think that's the, that's the biggest thing that I hear from parents that they're you know they're obsessed with their safety which makes sense mm-hmm. um, this part is where again we have to focus on keeping the parent uh, as safe as possible in the sense of dealing with their own grief of that their dreams aren't working out that their child may die yeah. um, are not coming home like they used to think they were mm-hmm. coming home um, I have heard many things about how parents try to get the kids back they use by using different maybe financial uh, gifts or making promises i've heard parents hiring somebody to kidnap them yeah. and bring them home um, again these are all things that you know it, i think we have to be really it has to be very individualized it's something i can't give a blanket statement about yeah i can imagine that's a, a really difficult mm-hmm. thing to to deal with so we're wrapping up i i wanted to ask you if and the name of this episode is going to be my kid is doing drugs mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. if you encountered someone saying that to you what would you immediately say to them in a few minutes to encourage them or or to get them to take some kind of action i would say i am glad you're talking to me right now because here's what you i need for you to do Mm -hmm. and i would tell them to educate themselves right away i would ask them bring their kiddo to my office tomorrow so that we could educate the child as well the adolescent as well Mm -hmm. um I would attempt at that moment in time to do a quick assessment to see where I thought needed. And I would give the recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, We can do a consult. We could do an assessment. We could do whatever we need to do to help get that started. Yeah, yeah. I would also just hear the parent, too. Oftentimes, you know, when I think about that kind of information, it's hard to talk about. Because one of the shame factors um, when we think about... uh, parenting is how I parent yeah so if my kids using drugs that parent may think it's about you know my fault I'm a bad parent yeah that's the ultimate failure that that the kid is doing drugs Um, yeah that's that is a tough one Mm -hmm. and as a man in recovery myself with with grown children I found there was a point when they were young when I had to sit down with them and talk about the uh, addiction mm-hmm. and mental uh, mm-hmm. illness that runs mm-hmm. throughout my my uh, extended family, as well as the predisposition, maybe genetically, for them, and that was the best I could do at the time. 
Right. And so I, I would think that that would be an important thing for parents Absolutely. who are in recovery to sit down with their Absolutely. own children and talk to them. It kind of goes in line with the birds and the bees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Birds and bees probably need to go a little bit sooner. And then, you know, ages of, well, maybe it's the same time yeah. <laughs> um, today. Maybe 11, 12, we start having the talk. And it doesn't have to be all the brain stuff. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to share all our failures when we were drinking and drugging. I don't we don't need this war stories going on. We can just say, this is a disease that affected my family. Mm-hmm. And I, I have this piece too mm-hmm. and I have concerns that this may follow you. Mm-hmm. So we have to be really careful yeah. in how uh, how you're growing up and I want to really support you having the healthiest brain possible and the least uh, interference as you're growing up to be a successful citizen. I think if our listeners could <laughs> parrot that exact phrase, it would have quite an impact. Mm. One, just a couple last questions for you, Lori. Um, what is the, the, what would you consider to be the toughest part of your job? <laughs> Ooh, I have a lot of those. <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, again, I've been doing this a long time, so that has shifted over the years. My first job was at a psychiatric lockup for kids, mm. ages three to eighteen, and um, then was seeing these kids going back into the same place that got them there mm-hmm. after years of institutionalization. Sure. Um, today looks a little different. Um, I think that we have such uh, stress in our life yeah that we can we can do lots of work with our mental health and our physical self um, and it can be taken away in, in a quick yeah. quick moment yeah. so I, I think I see when I say that I see people have seen people overdose so quickly um that's silly. I've seen people overdose, um, and their lives, families' lives have changed in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the hardest part is is having that experience and walking with those people that are left. Wow, that must be tough day after day. Unfortunately, I don't get that day after day. That's good. The, the good parts of my job is that yeah. I see progress yeah. most days. Yeah. Um, I had a client text me this morning saying oh i think we got somewhere let me get an appointment next week because i really felt like we i I hit something um or you know saying or terminating with a client because they've gotten all they need that is fabulous yeah yeah so Um, you've done what you can and yeah it's up to them to do the rest well you answered the my last question which was what is the most mm -hmm. gratifying part of Mm -hmm. your job but uh, and the truth and then let me just with that is helping get people where they need to go if it's not even here at the council uh-huh. you know it's kind of like we're the, we're the intersection sometimes sure um when i can get that person with just a little more information to that next place that is a shift yeah um yeah. from there they can they have the power to do their miracle yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. this podcast may be listened to by people anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world what would you say to them we know what resources are available here in Houston mm-hmm. and certainly the council is one of a number of them what would you say to somebody who is not in in a, a community like ours 
say I'm sorry. <laughs> Come to Houston. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, there are many fine communities with lots of recovery everywhere. Sure. I would, if if these questions and these things have come up for you, I would start talking about it. I would find the best resource you can, the safest person that you can to start talking. That helps us. When we can have another person connect with us that's safe, uh, automatically we are shifting. Yeah. From there is is educate yourself on the resources that of your community mm -hmm. um, and go get them. Yeah, that's a great way to end. Lori Feaster, thanks so much mm -hmm. for being on the Council on Recoveries podcast. And uh, I wish you well and many successes with your clients. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to Amber Grant for production assistance with this podcast and to Sean McClard for the original music. I'm Howard Lester. And I'm grateful to you for spending time with me today. See you next time.